Welcome to Distance and Intimate, a podcast hosted by the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Justice Committee of the James Madison University Student Government Association. We are excited to have this space to have intimate conversations about issues on diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice in the James Madison University community and our society in general. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Hi everyone, my name is Ginger Barbour. I use she, her, her pronouns. I'm the Diversity and Inclusion Committee Chair um, in Student Government Association. Um, hi everyone, my name is Leah. Uh, my pronouns are they, them, and I'm a student senator on the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Justice Committee. Hi, my name is Melody. I use she, her, her pronouns, and I'm the Communications Director for the Student Government. Hi, my name is Dolores Flamiano, and I use she, her pronouns. I'm a professor in the School of Media Arts and Design. Hi, my name is Dr. Morgan Smalls. I use she, her pronouns. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Media Arts and Design, and my area of research ties into communication studies, women and gender, and pop culture. Um, my name is Dr. Tali Mitchell. I am an associate um, professor in SMAD as well. Um, my research focuses on um, influencing the media with skin tone, skin p- complexion, and how um, we're represented in the media. Hi, I'm Gwen Mellinger. I'm in the School of Media Arts and Design also. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I do media history on race and um, also on um, newsroom diversity. So for this episode, we were originally going to be discussing uh, minority representation in the media. However, after some discussion with our guests, we have decided to use the term marginalized representation instead. Um, And we thought we'd have a short introductory discussion about associations with the term minority and why we are choosing an alternative. So if any of our um, guests would like to speak on this, we'd love to have a discussion. So since I'm the troublemaker, I'll I'll speak up. so when I, um, particularly as a, as a white person who d- studies and writes about race, I'm very uncomfortable with the term minority because it appears to be, feels when I'm, I'm writing this term that I'm designating others as less than. And I know that the historical root of that term, I, I don't know what the people um, in the 1960s and 70s who were in sociology were thinking, um, but it, I know that they were referencing demographics, the the population and and how many people were um, being represented, but the term just doesn't make me, um, I don't like using it and I always write around it. Um, I only use it if I'm quoting somebody. And um, as Dr. Flamiano pointed out, in some parts of the United States um, that we actually have, if you're using the demographic frame of reference, we have um, minority, majority um, reversal um, in population anyway. So it's, it's kind of an antiquated t- term and it just is a little bit loaded, I think. So marginalized works much better. I agree, and um, I, I teach SMAD 150. That's one of the classes that I teach, with, which is a general education course um, that's all about media literacy. And we do consider race and gender and I think we like to use the term underrepresented groups mm-hmm. because even if uh, the people that we're talking about, such as the Latinos in Texas or California, for example, are actually a majority of the population, they are underrepresented when it comes to media. 
typically um, underrepresented or misrepresented or both. So I think that's another useful term. Yeah, so when did um, concerns with underrepresentation in the media come about? So as the historian here, uh, <laughs> I will answer that. Um, and again, um, I certainly don't presume to, to speak for the people who were making this decision at the time they made it, but the first black newspaper was founded in 1827. It was called Freedom's Journal. And the publishers of the newspaper, um, in their mission statement, um, said uh, something to the effect of, too long have others spoken for us. And that was the reason that the, the newspaper was being founded. And so if that's 1827 and they're talking in terms of this being an ongoing problem, <laughs> then um, it probably had been um, a, concern, a concern um, with representation and, and voice and that sort of thing that they had been aware of uh, for some time. In the, the 20th century, this becomes an issue. Uh, we have the explosion of media. Um, you know, it, it truly becomes mass communication. It's supported by advertising. And we have, you know, large urban newspapers, magazines, you know, wire services. Um, and then in the 20th century, of course, we all also get broadcasting and then eventually internet. Um, but it's important, I think, to look at, I mean, there's, there are a number of times when the issue of representation um, of marginalized people becomes um, a public issue. And it focuses around, most prominently around, uh, the representation of black Americans because of the black press, which was very vibrant in the 20th century. It hit um, its um, height of um, circulation in World War II. It was also a factor in um, persuading um, African Americans to move from the South to the North, um, part of the migration, that sort of thing. And um, then, of course, it was um, a, a factor in the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, and then in 1968, there was a government report, the Kerner um, Commission report, that pointed directly at um, the uh, white media, the white controlled media, and the way that it excluded um, um, black Americans from the conversation that it was creating, and then also um, in terms of employment. And that was one of the first times that the issue of employment in newsrooms had been raised. And so that was kind of a, a watershed moment in um, uh, 1968. But the Kerner Commission report, it was a government commission, said things like, if you read the white media, you would think that, um, and they used the term Negro at the time, but that, that Negroes never go to PTA meetings. Um, you know, there was this, this uh, sort of very slanted view um, of, of black life and that um, one of the con condemnations in that report was that the white media had completely failed the legitimate expectations that black people might have in, in the media, so. Um, to add to that, when you're talking about the the 20th century, there were almost no or little representation of black people kind of in the first half 
of the 20th century and the images that were um, presented or constructed were kind of frequently negative. And a lot of times scholars think back to Birth of a Nation um, in 1915, um, particularly in some of the stereotypes that were being presented, um, such as the the lazy, ignorant sexual predator um, being aligned with the identity of a black man. Um, it kind of showed the, the black person as the enemy, and many have argued that it glamorized the KKK and things of that nature. Um, and for historical context, this was also something that was shown at the White House as well. And the NAACP actually boycotted it. So when we're talking about these concerns, we see how they're not just individual concerns, but organizational concerns that are that are striving to um, make changes, particularly when you're thinking about the, the black population as well. And we could continue on giving examples. You have Gone with the Wind um, in 1939 that kind of showcase this uh, kind of ignorant, uh, sassy, loyal servant type thing, which a lot of people led to the, the mammy stereotype. So throughout history, even when we're thinking about newspapers and things of that nature, there still has been or was a continuation of um, misrepresentation, lack of representation, things of that nature, and we began to see more organizations actually um, showing concerns about these marginalized identities being portrayed in um, negative and limiting ways in the media. Now, one thing that's interesting is that the uh, um, boycotts of um, Birth of a Nation were, that was one of the first things that the NAACP did, um, it had just been founded. And it just was setting up chapters around the United States, and that was one of its first acts of activism. So moving on to our next question, how has the scope changed from traditional print media to social media? I think this is an area that uh, Dr. Smalls and, and Dr. Uh, Mitchell could really speak to, but I'll just kind of um, jump in quickly to say that I think um, Things from a media literacy perspective, the advent of social media has uh, just give, given rise to a lot more voices. Mm -hmm. It's it's kind of um, broadened the conversation, and I know that um, students of mine I, they they shared um, you know with me the voices that they or or the the people who they look up to um, as social media influencers who who show that you know the communities that they belong to are represented and there are people who look like them and who have similar experiences. So I think that on the on the whole the impact has been positive mm -hmm. but I'm sure that it's not that simple and it's more more complicated but um, that's my that's my quick take on it. Well I think um, part of the representation in social media um, now with social media we have this thing broadcast yourself like with YouTube and video um, so we're in a position where we can see ourselves in media in that way because we can put ourselves in media. Mm -hmm. um, so with social media, that's the positive change with that. Um, um, yeah, with that, I think if we kind of talk about the, the setup of it, um, the ways in which you're thinking about traditional print media, because I know in our 150 class we talk about um, going from a known sender to an anonymous receiver, 
um, the idea that there's this one-way communication at first when we were thinking about newspapers and things of that nature to uh, social media digital media allowing it to be more interactive um, there's a lower barrier to entry so more people can actually engage um, you can be a receiver as well as a producer of media messages, right, which I think is a really important thing when um, Tally was talking about the idea of representation and voices and kind of being able to put your own, uh, your own image, your own identity, your own narrative out there. Um, and it made me think of the concept of participatory culture that I've done a good bit of research on, and that's by Jenkins. And essentially, it's the idea that there's a, a strong support for kind of creating and sharing your creation with others and that, as I mentioned, there's like a lower barrier to entry um, for whether you wanted to use it in an artistic way or whether you wanted to use it for some type of civic engagement. Um, there's an ability for individuals to access this in a very um, seemingly free way, which we can talk about as well. Um, and also the idea that those who are contributing feel like their contributions actually matter and like they're making some type of um, difference. And so I think from traditional media to social media, the idea of engagement, the idea of who can actually participate. Um, now there are arguments on whether or not uh, clicktivism is real activism and things of that nature. You have arguments on that lens, um, but the idea of who all can actually participate and get their voices out there because it's been used to um, help push forward social movements. Um, when we think about uh, Black Lives Matter or Asian Lives Matter or Oscar So White or whatever, Me Too movement, all these different movements that have been able to uh, come about as a result of the engagement in social media in a way that could have been limited or hindered if we were just using traditional media. Yeah, and on a related um, subject, I think the advent of things like bystander videos, you know, when we're talking about, um, you know, George Floyd's d uh, murder and also the killing or the controversy surrounding Sandra Bland and her death in a jail cell in Texas mm -hmm. in 2015, there was a bystander video there as well, which I think served to help propel and push forward the, um, the Black Lives Matter movement and Say Her Name movement and those kinds of movements for social justice because there were witnesses who were there on the scene and were, who were able to show what they saw to the world because of uh, social media. Mm -hmm. Although there are instances um, where it is bystanders um, recording things and it's clear as day as what's going on, right? And it still um, doesn't push for it the way it should. So. It's good that we, we can do that. We can record these things and have um, proof, right? But sometimes it doesn't even matter still. Yeah, unfortunately, there's this um, the category of um, visual evidence that I, I, this was a new term to me, but um, have you heard of trauma porn? Yeah. The yeah. idea, and, and this I learned from a, a guest speaker who um, is a professor at VCU, her name is Kimberly Nichelle Brown, and she was talking about her research in um, in terms of feminist spectatorship and sort of the ethics of being um, a, a black feminist. And she talked about how some people get off on seeing images of black people being harmed and hurt. And she kind of mm -hmm. talked about how you know that sort of the 
the underside or the, um, I guess, the, the, the other side of the coin, the mm -hmm. flip side of the, the, the fact that we can um, have these bystander videos and have the technology to show um, these gruesome images, which in some cases spur outrage and spur change, but you know it depends on who the audience is. If it's a racist audience, they have another reaction to it. Mm -hmm. And I think when we're thinking about social media, we should always have a conversation about power and uh, ownership because a lot of times with these social media platforms, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, well, Meta now, excuse me, right? It's Meta, right? Um, so with these platforms, you, you buy in and it's seemingly free, right? But thinking about the data and the privacy and um, your information that you're giving up in exchange, right? And how that can ultimately be used against you right, or how you're not necessarily profiting from the, the data that you're putting out there that will be out there in perpetuity, right? And so thinking about social media and power and who has the power, right? Who has the ability to shut down voices, right, on these platforms? Who are being silenced? Why are they being silenced? When are they being silenced versus others, right? Because we always see these conversations about certain celebrities' voices get amplified versus certain celebrities, when they talk about a, a more touchy topic, it might get, they might get pulled or temporarily banned, right? So thinking, we had this, or we saw during a former President Trump's election, this whole idea about power and social media and how it can be used, right? So thinking about that as well when we're when we're talking about social media and not removing it from the idea of the power dynamic of ownership. So our next question we have is, uh, what job opportunities have opened up for marginalized groups in the media recently, and what fields in the media are these in, and what what exactly does this look like? So I am a stats person. <laughs> Numbers mean a lot to me. So I had grabbed some numbers for you guys. So um, right now, the share of minority, and I'm going to use that word because that's what's used in this particular study, um, lead actors that we're talking about is 27.6%, um, which is very low. It's very interesting that it began to climb. And then, so I'm talking about from 2011. Um, 10.5% minorities, and then it goes up to 15, 16. It goes a little bit down on um, 2014 um, to 12, 13, 13. Goes up to 19% in 2017, um, all the way to 2020, where we were almost at 40%. But now we're going back down, um, because right now at this point, we're at 26%. So we were on this steady climb for minorities, and we're talking about lead roles um, in the media. Um, but all of a sudden, we're going down. So that's interesting, and especially with everything that's going on, um, like Dr. Small said, with the Black Lives Matter and um, all of these movements that has to do with race and things like that, um, that the representation is going the opposite way instead of climate, you know, like it was. And there are a couple of resources if people just wanted to kind of look on their own. Um, the city, the Center for the Study of Women in Television and Film, they have a lot of different um, studies and updated stats. And a couple of things I pulled 
quote, they noted how studies show there's an uptick in women film directors, but the numbers are still low, right? Um, they also noted, quote, that despite the rise in female directors, women still lack opportunities in Hollywood, right? And so that made me think of the, the hashtag Oscars so right and thinking about this question, have these have job opportunities opened up for minorities in the media? My immediate response was yes, but, right? There's this, this, there's this, this idea that there's still not enough, right? There's still a long ways to go. So despite the fact that we see this um, as Dr. Mitchell kind of mentioned, almost like a roller coaster ride mm-hmm. of um, an increase in um, roles, then we have like a, a decrease, um, even at its highest point, is still not enough, mm-hmm. right? And so um, also thinking about these job opportunities opening up for minorities in the media, studies have shown that when you have more minorities in roles of leadership, that then that kind of trickles down to others. And so it makes me think of creators such as um, black creators, such as Issa Rae or Mara Brock Akil or Shonda Rhimes, which I know a lot of people are familiar with, um, Jordan Peele, um, Kenya Barris, even Tyler Perry, right? This idea of when people are in positions, they are able to then hire others, other minorities um, or marginalized communities whether that is race, class, gender, sexuality, disability, all those type of things, bringing it more to um, the the forefront. And a couple of other stats that I thought was interesting from the 2021 Hollywood Diversity Report, um, they talked about how though people of quote though people of color were approaching proportionate representation among cable and digital scripted leads. They remained underrepresented on every industry employment front during the 2019-2020 television season, end quote. So that's kind of supporting the idea that um, there may be progress or surface level progress, but there's still uh, a long ways to go. So our next question is, what are some stereotypes of underrepresented groups and different types of media and how have they influenced society? Well, I can say not so much stereotypes, um, speaking of um, black people, um, we're talking about representation. Um, so my research is with skin tone. Um, we have where women, women of color and black women um, that are a dark complexion are not as represented. I mean, like it's a huge difference. It's like 2% um, for if you're dark complected then um, you're not represented. And we have all of these these young girls and young teens that are these complexion and they don't see themselves in the media. Um, so, so not so much stereotypes, but um, influence to live up to, right? And so that's when we come to how um, we have all this Deception, deception in the media um, with Photoshop and um, from uh, making bodies look unrealistic, mm-hmm. and um, these these people. We're all influenced by the media. We study media, and we're influenced by it. So imagine um, you have people that you know know nothing about you know the fact that these images have been altered. Um, so beyond body image, so are skin complexions that are altered. So these 
women of color um, may be a dark complexion in reality, but shown in the media, they're not, they don't look like, they can be like three, four shades lighter where you actually look, um, a black woman can actually look like a white woman. Like it's that big of a difference. So that, on that aspect, it's a lot of media influence that's um, really negative and ha has very negative effects, especially on our children growing up, on teens. And, you know, it, it affects um, self-esteem. It's not just like what you look like, it's self-esteem, your relationships with people, how you feel about yourself, like, you know, your career, um, your education and things like that. And people would never think that um, how skin complexion is represented in the media would have that kind of effect, but it can. And I assume that this has um, become more of an issue with uh, Photoshop. Yes, yes, definitely with Photoshop, you can make someone look totally um, different. And you'll be surprised um, it's not hard to find images in the media of people like that we know we see like let's just take Beyonce for example um, it's images of her that are in magazines even um, like um, on the red carpet you know that's video right you we feel like it's all live and everything but that stuff is also photoshopped um, and it'll make someone's skin look lighter um, someone thinner you know taller all of these things, and everybody is a Photoshop expert. Um, <laughs> filters and all things like that. They're, they're actually filters, like Instagram filters um, on social media that you can make your skin look lighter, you know? So imagine that. It's just not just the influence that's being pushed upon us to do it. You know, you might not even thought of anything like that. Like, let me change my skin complexion, and then you see this filter. Oh. Let me see how I look lighter or how, how I look darker, right? And I think with that, so I'm going to go on a spiel because stereotypes are my thing, <laughs> right? Um, but we know in, in general, you know, media underrepresent women and in, in minorities, right? Um, but there was this um, a push or kind of a change as it related to black women because we had um, it's kind of like the past decade or so kind of ushered in this increase in shows starring black women, right? Mm -hmm. um, you might, black cast or majority black cast, black directors, things of that nature. And so some of the shows, um, if you, primetime shows, How to Get Away with Murder, right? With Viola Davis as the lead. Scandal. You had Scandal, right? With <laughs> Kerry Washington as the lead. Um, Being Mary Jane with Gabrielle Union as the lead. Um, you had... Um, insecure, Issa Rae, things of that nature, right? And so with, on network, cable, primetime, or even digital scripted series, we started to see an increase in, or what we thought was an increase in, in representation in these different roles. Um, but there was a larger conversation kind of brewing about the question of the type of characters, right? And that's kind of how we led it back to the idea of stereotypes, right? So. There's a lot of scholars that talk about stereotypes. I'll name a few just in case anybody wants to kind of look them up. But um, Patricia Hill Collins, um, Imani Cheers, Donald Bogle, um, Dateson Barlow. These are some of the, um, Tia Tyree, these are some of the um, many scholars, including myself, who have talked about representation, stereotypes, and things of that nature. And one interesting thing that you find is 
Although stereotypes, particularly as it relates to black women, have um, some have developed hundreds of years ago during the slavery time, during slavery, um, the inception of slavery, but some of those ideas still continue on. So, for example, the Jezebel, right? The Jezebel was thought of as basically a woman that is hypersexualized. A black woman that's hypersexualized, she uh, kind of has this inappropriate and kind of insatiable sexual appetite. Um, getting her, uh, she's almost primal, that's what Collins called her, kind of almost primal in her quest to kind of fulfill this appetite. But if we continue on the timeline, people might not necessarily say someone is a Jezebel, but they may at one point have said this person is a whore, right? Or slang this person is a hoe, right? And then people didn't say that term anymore, and now you hear the term thought, right? Mm -hmm. Which, sorry, but it stands for that hoe over there, right? Mm -hmm. And so this idea, there's a thread in there that has to do with the idea of sexuality, right? The idea of um, being objectified and being valued based on just your body, right? And so that's one idea of a stereotype. Um, but a lot of people, when they think of certain characters like Olivia Pope or uh, Mary Jane, there was this conversation, particularly when uh, Kerry Washington's character was having an affair with the president, it was a conversation circling, tying back to this idea of the Jezebel, right? Or tying back to this idea of how could this successful woman um, engage in this manner, right? And so it still has some type of, uh, almost a, a taste of these older stereotypes that in my opinion just kind of shapeshift. It's not to say that these new characters um, are not more elevated, it's not to say that they're not more complex, it's not to say that they do not show um, diversity, um, but often times when people are just looking at it to see whether or not a stereotype can still be present, there are some undertones still, still there. And one of the issues I think with that is because when you don't have that many um, options for shows with, with um, marginalized communities, they're gonna get nitpicked more, right? Though you could find a show with a white character who um, definitely uses their sexuality, right? or who definitely has been with a married man, or, or who definitely has committed adultery, right? But they don't necessarily get framed in the same way because the stereotype is not tied to them in that manner. Um, another stereotype, and then I'll let it go, is the idea of the, the sapphire. Um, and that's this, um, like a, a, a kind of a loud woman, black woman that kind of emasculates um, her, her man or her family and things of that nature. And so people used to say sapphire, but nowadays some people may say, well, that's kind of almost reminiscent of the angry black woman, mm -hmm. right? And when we think of the angry black woman, that shows up in a lot of different media representations. Like we've seen critiques of um, Michelle Obama, if she shows any type of emotion, mm -hmm. Serena Williams, whenever she kind of like threw the racket and there was this whole thing, right? Tying her back to this angry black woman, um, stereotype and so the, the the issue with stereotypes is that um, they don't just stay on the screen right they impact people's lived experiences or perceptions of others lived experiences um, and so that is um, some of the stereotypes particularly of black women in the media and how it can influence society because it doesn't just stay on the screen one thing that's interesting, um, I believe the Sapphire um, character was in Amos and Andy. Yes. And so what that did, um, and I, I think this has happened um, in, other, in other places in the media, 
but it um, gave Cong the radio show and the and then the television program, which were also boycotted by the NAACP, mm -hmm. um, gave concrete concreteish form to um, in the form of a character to a stereotype that was already circulating uh, that uh, you know uh, black women were um, too pushy to I mean um, uh, too you know, bossy with, 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 with men and, and that sort of thing. And that became the, the, the basis of the, the Sapphire character. So now um, it also gave it additional life um, beyond the um, uh, radio show and the program. Mm -hmm. So, it, it, so it, rather than it just staying in the 1930s, uh, 40s, and 50s, it suddenly is something that we can talk about as the, the sapphire mm -hmm. stereotype. And I think um, in one of my classes we were talking about the sapphire stereotype, and we were talking about Bell Hooks, the famous, the black feminist mm -hmm. author who sadly died just at the end of yeah. last year. And um, Bell Hooks had some interesting things to say about sap the sapphire character and her in her conversations with black women, you know, film spectators and TV spectators, they had a different reaction, or especially black women of a certain age had a different reaction to Sapphire than white audiences or black men who would see her as a figure of scorn or you know somebody to be ridiculed. Whereas older black women would look at the Sapphire character and relate to her on a, on a, in a way in terms of somebody who was expressing her frustration with um, you know having to, <laughs> I mean, part of her character was berating her husband, who was portrayed as a, a, a lazy kind of you know unintelligent, unintelligent, um, unmotivated, unambitious uh, black man. So I think um, black female spectatorship scholars like Bell Hooks and like some of the scholars that Dr. Smalls was talking about, about I think they bring um, a, an important. Counter narrative to into the um, conversation, in terms of having been in, in a very unique position of being excluded and not seeing for so many years and so many decades, not seeing anything positive to relate to in film and television, and having to figure out how to come to terms with that. And you know, one way to come to terms with that is to kind of uh, read against the grain or read in an oppositional manner. Um, and that's something that we encourage our students in the media literacy class to do because there are still a lot of um, images out there that deserve to be resisted <laughs> because they're objectifying or because they um, leave certain people out of the conversation. I think some important things to include as well because I'm a theater major so I get to talk about this from a different perspective um, but because you mentioned um, how audiences perceive these stereotypes and how that can influence society. Um, like thinking back to minstrel shows and the Jim Crow era and how a lot of times uh, black, um, I guess, playwrights today try to use that as a tool to um, change the idea of black representation and um, I think it's important that sometimes the audiences don't perceive that as it's intended and we cannot control the oppositional gaze of the audience, um, but in other instances where we see um, in like Euphoria, so uh, 
the representation of Jules as a transgender woman, I think is also important for our generation and shows as the changes that are happening um, in society. Um, so that was just something that I wanted to add. I I was in your 301 class last Mm -hmm. semester, and one of the units that we talked about that I think was actually part of what led us to do this podcast was the unit on Native American representation Mm -hmm. in the media, Mm -hmm. and how the scope has greatly changed from um, white people playing people of color Mm -hmm. in such a horrible way and depicting them as like they would depict Native Americans as you know savages and mm-hmm. just say that outright and little children would go and play you know cowboys and Indians and mm-hmm. not think of it in any sort of way other than good fun that's kind of transformed. Mm-hmm. Even the representation of the Latinx community and how sometimes um, the Latinx men can be portrayed as uh, gangsters yeah, violent. And, mm-hmm. and how that influences um well how it's represented in society and how it's reflected in society and in the treatment of the latinx community as well as um i'm blanking on what i was just about to say but well i think um, it also reflects a, one's self-image if you belong to that community mm-hmm. and you're a child yeah, sure. growing up just like there was a, a segment in a documentary about native american children watching you know the um the dances the, with wolves, dances with mm-hmm. wolves or um little big man or you know t- um mm-hmm. narratives where um indian and native american communities were destroyed mm-hmm. and were perceived as the bad you know mm-hmm. um, savages who needed to be destroyed, what does that do to a young person's self-image and mm-hmm. um, you know, how, how does that mm-hmm. traumatize a person or, 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 you know, so it's not only how does it affect the um, community at large, but it has def- definitely mm-hmm. impacts on individuals. And in my um, 498 class, we've had conversations about um, mascots and things mm-hmm. of that nature mm-hmm. in the conversation that has been surrounding um, change it was the Washington the commanders the commanders right <laughs> and the commanders and all this whole conversation about um, who has the right to say who has the right to name right community and mm-hmm. what happens when there's not um, a consensus on whether or not we should continue with this name or not because there were some members of the community the Native American community who thought this was a great thing and there were some who did not right so this idea of when we're thinking about marginalized communities remembering that they're not monolithic and remembering that there is um, diversity within the community itself mm-hmm. um, and another example that you made me think of Dr. Famiano was um, we show in SMAD 150 the Pocahontas mm-hmm. example right mm-hmm. and Disney right we know how mm-hmm. powerful Disney is and we talked about the idea of um, being shown as savages, right, or being having to be tamed and things of that nature, how certain narratives can be projected to kids at a very young age and how problematic that can be um, as well. And how sometimes there's a mixed message or maybe a step forward and two steps back in terms of, you know, we look at, we analyze Disney as sort of celebrating Native American uh, traditions in a way up to a certain extent, but also at the same time reinforcing gender stereotypes and having Pocahontas shown mm-hmm. as this very sexualized, you know, um, Barbie type figure mm-hmm. when she was really a young girl mm-hmm. at the time, a 14 year old or, or what, what not, with, who had mm-hmm. absolutely no 
um, romantic relationship with and even the Asian and Asian American representation, especially with the pandemic and how they were portrayed mm -hmm. in the media and how that influenced their businesses and mm -hmm. I mean, it's so extensive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that goes back to the idea that these stereotypes do have real world consequences mm -hmm. and they feed into racial profiling and they feed into you know hate crimes and, and racially motivated acts of violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have this experience a lot in my class um, with the angry black woman. So, of course, this is portrayed in the media. Um, if I get just a little touchy about something, if I have just a little problem about something, um, or short, show any type of um, not being satisfied, unsatisfied with something, all of a sudden my students portrayed me as the um, angry black woman. And it's, it's sad because um, it gets to a point where they feel like they can't say anything to me um, because what they've learned through the media. Mm -hmm. And it's totally not the case, of course. So I have to be very careful, you know, no matter how I feel about what the situation is, um, be very careful how, um, I express myself. Like it's almost like walking on eggshells, right? And it shouldn't have to be that that way, but this is what they're seeing in the media, right? They see this um, and, and not even really realizing that it's the whole stereotype of, you know, the angry black woman. They don't realize that that's what they're doing. Um, but yeah, that's my personal experience, how the media can influence society. and. Those influences are often negative, right? Um, I mean, of course, it's positive influences in the media, but the ones that are negative can, I mean, we said this, every one of us have said um, how this can affect so many different things and self-esteem being one of the things on the top of the list. Um, that can, self-esteem, um, think about how you feel about yourself. It makes a big difference in how you live your life and quality of life and things like that, and it all breaks down to the media. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to start wrapping up, um, but as our last question, we want to ask, uh, ask you all, um, what are some modern examples of discrimination in the media that we can see, as well as how can we as a society move forward inclusively? Um, I have some modern examples while this can come up with the how we move forward. <laughs> um, so, for example, like I mentioned, Serena Williams and the idea of her um, expression of anger or sadness and how um, the idea of you should just be there to um, perform. We've even thought about that with LeBron James. It was like the whole shut up and dribble type thing. The idea that you are there to perform um, a service and that's it. You're not a, you're, you're not a human, you're a product. Um, and Williams talked, Serena Williams talked about the ways in which she gets critiqued in ways that white male players do not, right? And she um, Fox noted how, um, quote, her flare-up with the chair umpire shows how inconsistent and perhaps sexist um, tennis officers can be, right, end quote. So this whole idea of, in sports we see it. Um, like I mentioned before, the former First Lady Michelle Obama um, 
a lot of comparison of her to apes, mm -hmm. right? And to animals and, and critiquing of her body and discussing of her body, which kind of, to me, was reminiscent almost of Sarah Bartman. I feel like there was some yeah. type of connection mm -hmm. there between the idea of the, the body being critiqued, mm -hmm. right? Um, particularly when the, the aesthetics that she or other um, women of color may have are judged negatively on their bodies, but when it's on a body that is a lighter, um, when you're talking about colorism, or if it's a body that is non-black or non not of color at all, it's praised, mm -hmm. right? When it comes to hairstyles, so when we're thinking about um, the Crown Act, right, where we still have um, a lot of places where um, people of color have to justify wearing their hair in the way that it grows out of their head, mm -hmm. right? However, um, I just saw on social media where um, there was something called sticky bangs, right? And sticky bangs were when this um, Caucasian woman basically was laying her edges, and she called it sticky bangs. And that's something that black people have been doing for years, <laughs> and it's basically, the, the reasoning behind it is different. A lot of times people of color um, modify their hair to help assimilate. Right to not be a uh, not have it as a source of contention or to look unprofessional mm -hmm. and things of that nature, right? Versus just doing it as a, a trend and thinking you made it up. The same thing when Kim Kardashian wears cornrows, right? It's this big deal, like oh my gosh, cornrows are this new style. When it's people in Africa have been braiding their hair for centuries, <laughs> right? And so this idea of whose body is it on? Um, these examples of discrimination, how it looks depending on your ethnicity, how it looks depending on your gender, right? When we think of um, the ways in which Little Nas X is critiqued, um, uh, Billy Porter is critiqued based on certain clothing choices that they make, things of that nature. So all these are different ways in which, um, or modern examples of the ways discrimination plays a role not just in sports, but in politics, in people's everyday lives. Um, you're, you don't have to be the first lady. Um, you could be at your regular nine to five and experience mm -hmm. this as well, right? Or your part-time job, get it how you live. Um, so, so that whole idea. I think the thing that came to my mind um, when, that when this question was asked was the backlash that we're currently in regarding um, critical race theory and the fact that the new governor, relatively new governor of Virginia, um, issued an executive order basically saying that critical race theory was not to be taught in K through 12. And I think there are other states where they're talking about extending that to higher education. So I think it, in a way it shows, it shows a couple of things. It shows that, um, that progress has been made in terms of putting issues and putting racism on the agenda and that, that certain people are scared about that and they're taking these steps as a way to try and shore up their power. Um, but at the same time, it also shows that there's a really fundamental misunderstanding of what critical race theory is because it's a, as I understand it, it's a term that comes from the law and jurisprudence and it has to do with how people are treated unequally under the legal system. So it's a misrepresentation to, to talk about critical race theory being taught in the, um, in the K through 12 schools. So I don't know where I'm going with this except <laughs> to say that I think the fact that there is a backlash is a sign that um, change is happening. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's, um, it's something to be reckoned with, but it's also, um, you know, I guess the message is keep, keep at it, keep 
fighting if you're an activist and keep being an ally if you're an ally who's, you know, uh, uh, um, and, and that's what I think I'm striving for and, and trying to carve out a way of, of working that into the curriculum so that students who, uh, who support diversity and who support uh, inclusion, what's the word, DEI, diversity, um, access and inclusion, or equity and inclusion, um, are, are able to somehow um, both learn about it and become more knowledgeable and also contribute to, to mm -hmm. making change. I think the fact that we didn't even get to touch on um, religion or ability like <laughs> says mm -hmm. so much about mm -hmm. how abundant this uh, topic is. Um, but I think you've all made some great insight and I really appreciate I appreciate you all for coming today. Um, Thanks for so having thank us. You so much. Yes, well, we appreciate it. Yeah, it's an important topic. <laughs> if you'd like to be featured on our podcast or even have a topic that you would like to discuss, you can DM us on Instagram at JMUSGA. Please subscribe and rate us on any platform if you enjoyed. Thanks for listening.